Hello, and welcome to the teacher edition of Steve Barkley Ponders Out Loud. The complexity of teaching is both challenging and rewarding, and my curiosity is piqued whenever I explore with teachers the multiple pathways for facilitating student engagement in the exciting world of learning. This podcast looks to serve teachers as they motivate and support their learners. Thanks for listening. I'm delighted that you're here. How Teachers Can Build Student-Led Discussions. Alexis Wiggins and Tracy Hill are joining our podcast today, exploring student-led discussions. They're sharing experiences and insights from teaching both nationally and internationally, as well as serving as instructional coaches. I found their article titled Six Strategies to Bolster Student-Led Discussions in an ASCD post, and I was anxious to invite them to the podcast. Uh, I'm looking forward to learn some strategies that I might apply myself as I work with teachers and in in PD and uh, working with PLCs. So welcome, Alexis and Tracy. Hi, Steve. Good to be here. Hi. I'm wondering if you'd give people a little bit of your background, uh, especially noting your teaching experiences. Sure. Um, I started teaching over 20 years ago in independent schools in the U.S., and then I had the opportunity to go and teach and live in five other countries uh, around the world in in international schools. I've mostly been a high school English teacher, but have dabbled in a little middle school Spanish teaching and social studies as well. And I was had the pleasure of working with Tracy as an instructional coach for a few years in the Middle East. So my teaching career started uh, almost 30 years ago in uh, Maryland. I did public school teaching for, I think, about eight years and then made the move overseas. And uh, I think I've taught in six different overseas countries. One of those countries I never got to, actually. I was online for a year during uh, COVID and then... Uh, decided to stay in the in the states and and made a move to come and teach with Alexis. We we brought the the band back together again. Oh, that's great. That's great. Would you give us a a definition if if you've got it for what student led discussion means? I think student led discussion is really when you as a teacher let the students not only try and and try again uh, to lead their own learning and unpack uh, conversations and inquiry and meaning through that that kind of work but it's also really empowering students to build the soft skills that they need for for college and career and and life you know listening questioning asking empathy I always, you know, tell the story that when I was younger, I would spend all night preparing my discussions that I would lead for students. And, you know, I'd have pages and pages of notes and I'd be so nervous. And if I didn't get through all of them, you know, what questions would I ask? What did I want the students to get to? And now, you know, having learned so much and seen the power of student-led discussions, I bring a blank piece of paper and I write down what the students <laughs> Yeah, it, it's really funny listening to you describe that, that all of that effort was going into student-led. <laughs> it, it sounds a little incongruent. Exactly. It, it actually, 
as you're talking about that, it did, I was laughing, uh, thinking that's exactly what it was like spending so much time crafting. I can remember doing uh, small book discussions or talking about a novel with a group of kids and making sure I had the best, most well-crafted questions that were going to get at all the things I needed to make sure that they had taken away and had learned. And that's so funny that you say now you just bring the blank sheet of paper <laughs> and they can tell you all that they need. Now I know um, uh, for us, this is, is going off a teeny bit, but, but now we just, I've been working with, with my eighth grade team now. And we've just, with the work that Alexis helped us of creating essential questions that uh, go with our units, our literature. And so we have these, you know, three to five essential questions and that's what we also bring to the table. So we're not recreating things. We're coming back to those common questions throughout the novel, throughout the unit. And that also, um, thinking about time, you know, it might take a little bit of time on the front end to, to create those. Although it's one of my colleagues, he's very good at creating them. We usually give him a, the job of, of creating those. But um, it takes that time on the front end, but then it pays off right? It's the same with student-led discussions, uh, that it might take some time on the front end to set that up, but then it's going to benefit you as a teacher in the long run. So as I was uh, reading through your article and thinking about the, the concept of student ownership and accountability within student-led discussions, I was wondering if it kind of exists on a, on, on a continuum so is there a, a, a starting point for teachers that, that's a, a little bit less, it's student-led, but not at the d dynamic level, uh, further out on, on the continuum? Am I, am I at all accurate in that? Yeah, I think, I think teachers should do what they feel the most comfortable with. I don't think we want every classroom to look exactly the same. But I will say that I have tried so many different styles of Socratic seminar, student-led discussion, Harkness, spider web discussion, whatever you want to call it. And for me, the most powerful format I've seen and the one that my book is about and that I share with teachers is, is really turning it over to the kids and training them how to lead and assess their own conversations. So I actually am pretty strict about it with myself where I will put a time on the clock for you know, high school students, it would be anywhere between 35 and 60 minutes. And I will not speak for that amount of time. I will listen. I will take notes. I will graph the conversation. And then I might join the conversation later, um, ask a pointed question or pick up on something someone else said and said, we, you know, you kind of skipped over what Johnny was saying, but uh, that was kind of an important point. Let's get back to that. So, uh, you know, and then it becomes, we kind of wrap it up and do the feedback. I find that that's a lot more powerful. I, I talk in the article about a colleague who asked me to come in and observe how much talk time he had in a class where he was specifically trying not to talk as much. And he talked the majority of the time and he was shocked when I timed it. We were both surprised. So I think we talk a lot more than we think we do. And I think we like to hear ourselves talk a lot more than we would like to believe. And if you just shut up 
<laughs> for like 30 minutes or more, you'd be amazed what the kids will say. I, if I bite my tongue a little bit longer than I'm comfortable with every time, the kids almost always get where I wanted them to get and more, and they get a lot more out of it. So I'm pretty, I'm pretty, you know, committed to that end of the continuum. But, you know, I think there are all kinds of teachers in classrooms and teachers should do what they feel comfortable. I think teachers should also do what they feel comfortable. But I think that starting out with a real structure from the start is important. And I guess for me, a continuum is that you have that. So our structure that we use is based on also 12 principles that um, I worked with some of the principles that Alexis had that were sort of like, you know, the expectations of the discussion. Then I worked with a teammate of mine, making sure that they were equitable, looking at diversity within our classrooms. And we start every discussion reviewing those 12 principles. So for, uh, for example, to be um, empathetic, to back up what we say with textual evidence, um, things like that would be a principle. We have class commitments that we honor that we create at the start of the year. So I think like, so for me, the start of the continuum is, is that, putting those things into place. Students are going to run the discussion. I am not sitting with the students. I am on the outside of the circle, listening, observing, taking notes. And then as for me, as the continuum moves down, we kind of up the ante. Maybe today's discussion isn't just about who's participating and, and how you're balancing the discussion. Now, today, we're looking at textual evidence. You know, as we move down the continuum, now we're looking at, are you challenging classmates' ideas? It's nice to be kind and enjoying the conversation, but, you know, I'm watching some of you and it looks like you're maybe questioning something or maybe you're not agreeing with something. So we might learn strategies. How do we respectfully disagree and engage in that? And then, you know, down the continuum, it might be coaching, which we can talk about in a little bit. How do we do the coaching? So, so for me, the continuum still would start with the group of students, these principles, I'm not talking. I'm on the outside, and then we can kind of build as you like. It, it uh, it's funny. I, I was going to come back with the coaching question be, before you, uh, you laid it out there. The the term that I've been using in in uh, in my work, uh, it just took me a lot of years to, to find it, uh, but it's it's uh, student learning production behaviors. So in a in a learning activity, there's a set of behaviors that students use to learn. And frequently, teachers have to teach those behaviors and coach those behaviors. And that's where the empowerment of, of the students come. And so I'm kind of hearing there's a, a set of learning strategies that, uh, that, 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 that students use and, and, and you reach the point of coaching. Yeah. And I think Tracy's commitments are, you know, tied very much to the rubric that we use in, in our high school classroom discussions. Um, which are a mix of, you know, academic sort of skills, like referencing the text to support what someone's saying or what you're saying, not just saying, well, I think th this, and it's like, well, where's in the text, does it support that? But they're also behaviors. And so I think the rubric is really a mix of what, you know, for us, it's a checklist rubric. Did we do all this today? Did the conversation build? 
Did we listen? Were there side conversations and distracting behavior? Because did you do your work? Did you come prepared? Because we we count on you. We want to hear from you. We depend on you. We're a team. And so you're right in saying that it, it really is building those learning behaviors as well as some academic skills that are really important to our disciplines. I need to look at that rubric because it sounds exactly what I need for PLC meetings with teachers. <laughs> yes. It is. It's ownership and accountability. I'm uh, sure a lot of this overlaps. Yeah. All of those things. Because in effect, a, a, a high quality professional learning community should be a discussion led by the people who are sitting around the table looking at the student data or looking at the unit uh, that they're about to design together. Yeah, absolutely. Well, in the uh, article, you uh, identified six strategies, and I, I wanted to uh, to ask you to take a moment or two to, to hit on each one of those, and then we'll be sure to put the, the, the link to the uh, article uh, in, into the podcast. The first one, uh, Alexis, you, al- you already hit on, which was uh, stop talking so much. Uh, yeah, but, you said uh, it much more nicely than but- I, <laughs> <laughs> I I'm just reading the way you wrote it in the article. <laughs> I said just shut up. But, yeah. <laughs> That's our, that could be that can be a new book. <laughs> it's the follow-up book. Huh? Uh, stop talking so much, but but you, there's yet there's another piece to it, and make time for inquiry. You want to take a moment on that? Make time for inquiry. Yeah, my father, the education reformer Grant Wiggins, always you know talked about um, with with his partner Jay McTie about meaning making, and that was an important part of their understanding by design model. And you've got to make time for meaning there, especially in the older grades, but really in any grades, you, you, you know, you you can't just deliver content and ask students to digest it and and understand and learn. So there's an important process where you, you, you're learning content or you're learning concepts, but you need to make meaning with them. And this is a wonderful tool for that. Student-led discussion is one of the best tools I've ever seen for making meaning because kids are working it out in real time. And like Tracy mentioned before, you know, you start building in scaffolding opportunities for them to challenge each other. That's, that's a skill that students need to learn. You know, how do you be polite and thoughtful and empathetic, but push back against groupthink or or erroneous thinking, because those are really important skills in life. And if we don't help students develop that through time for inquiry and meaning making, then I think we're actually doing a disservice. School cannot be about content delivery. Um, and as my dad always said, just because you taught it doesn't mean they learned it. And Spiderweb discussion, Socratic seminar, student-led discussion really allows you to see the learning happening in real time and and assess whether you need to sort of go another way or or spend a little more time unpacking that. But I think making time for that is vital in the classroom. Tracy, how about taking us into the second one, which was uh, graph the discussion. I'll um I'll let I'll chat a little bit, and then I'll let Alexis maybe go into more of the technical because this is something that I actually learned from Alexis and, and her book and, and graphing the, the discussion. But uh, for me, so as you have that, we mentioned the blank sheet of paper as you're sitting on the outside of the group as the teacher, you're tracking or what we call graphing um, the discussion of, I mean, actually drawing lines on the paper between student to student. 
So uh, on that paper, I might draw a circle. Around that circle, I would draw every student's name and where they are sitting in the circle. And then as someone speaks, I might circle their name or put a dot on their name. They're the first speaker. And then they might add something. And then the next person speaks. I draw a line to the next person. Then the next person speaks. I draw a line. And uh, like Alexis has uh, spoken before about spider web, that's where that spider web visual comes from. So you're hoping at the end of the discussion, it has the look of a spider web with all those strands holding the group together with that discussion. And then this is a way for students to, to take a look and visually see this, right? Is it a spider web? Is, is, are there strands that are like super heavy between some students going back and forth? Is, does it look equitable? Are, you know, what does this look like? Do we have strands that aren't there? You know, one of the principles is everyone participates. And, and again, that could be for a student that never speaks. They, they spoke once today. That, that's great. Let's really celebrate that. There's a sense of balance and order. Another principle. So if you've spoken 20 times, maybe you want to speak 10. And the line to you is very dark because it's going back and forth uh, to you speaking. So that, that's the graphing. And, and for me, it's a reflective tool. It's a reflective tool for me to see mm -hmm. uh, what the discussion looked like. It's a way uh, for students to see that. Um, often we have students also graphing the discussion at the same time, or when we do the coaching model that we'll talk about, they're uh, actually graphing the discussion and taking that that ownership. I will say in my workshops, I'll often show the the web graphs from the beginning of the year and the end. And the the paradox is that the volume goes down. So you'll see many lines and like Tracy said, like dark lines, you know, and it's kind of ugly. It's an ugly web. And then <laughs> by the end of the year, as they get better, like she said, it looks more balanced and you'll see fewer lines and it, it's sort of, you know, counterintuitive. Why would there be fewer lines? And it's because there's more listening and they're building on each other's ideas rather than idea, idea, idea. And it's sort of this popcorn without really understanding that they're developing this conversation together. So you can see it progress over time. It's really powerful visual. And I think Tracy posts hers in, you know, publicly on a board in the classroom. And the kids kind of look at them. In my classroom, I have a, a like a yellow legal pad in a different color for every class. And they can kind of flip through and see the date and, oh, oh, look, this class, you know, got an A or whatever, you know, and, and they like to kind of compare to their classmates in other sections. So it's funny. When you describe that, uh, that change in, in the appearance of the, of the web, is, is, is the, the, the later one also connected to depth? It, it, there's, there's, is there a depth to the discussion that changes the, uh, the, the quickness of response back and forth? Yeah, I think I think there is generally a change in depth that usually comes with the assessment piece, but the visual I think is more about um, you know they they really start listening to each other and they start building off each other's ideas rather than I think in the beginning most kids of any age really just want to say what they want to say yep. have it's this their idea. idea. And then someone will say, oh, that's interesting. And I have this idea. And it, it, it just kind of 
is it it winds up being superficial even though they mean well and you have to sort of train them over time to see that we really need to listen to, someone might have said something really really good and we didn't develop it because you were just thinking about your idea and wanted to share it so i th i think the visual is more about the the behavior over time um, the depth also develops, but I think the visual doesn't necessarily reflect that in the same way. I think for me, that comes with the codes. I, I put stars when there's really insightful conversation. Alexis, you had mentioned the rubric before, so why don't you go a little bit further with that? And then Tracy, why don't you take it off of uh, her conversation into talking about the peer coaching that you brought up? Yeah, the, I have to give all the credit to the master school in um, Dobbs Ferry, New York, which is where I got the rubric and I've developed it a little bit since then, but pretty much it's the same rubric that the English department developed before I got there. And it's a rare example in my, in my work. I don't really like checklist rubrics very much. The, those aren't a style of rubric I use a lot for writing or presentation skills, but for this, I think it's great. Um, so basically there's um, nine points on our rubric. Everyone has participated more or less equally. The pace allows for clarity and thoughtfulness, but not boredom. There's a lively sense of balance and order focuses on one speaker at a time. The discussion builds. Comments aren't lost. The louder verbose do not dominate. The shy or quiet are encouraged. Students listen carefully and respectfully to one another. There's no side conversations, daydreaming on your laptop or phone, etc. That's disrespectful and same goes for sarcastic comments. Everyone's clearly understood and those who aren't are urged to repeat or speak up. Students take risks and dig for deep meaning and new insights. Students back up what they say with examples, quotations, et cetera, um, and the text is referred to often. My husband is a world language teacher and on his rubric, he, asked, uh, he added years ago, students correct each other's grammar and vocabulary errors. And that was kind of a game changer in the world language department. Wow. And he was working wow. um, as a world language teacher. So um, that's the rubric that the English department developed and I've continued to use over the years and it served me really, really well. And basically if we do all of those things, it's an A range grade. And if we do most of those things, it's a B range grade. And about half it's a c range grade the grades in my class are formative so they're you know no mm -hmm. count but but we do report them and record them and i find that it's really easy to have a checklist rubric you don't have to use that rubric for your classroom but i do encourage you to build a rubric that's like a checklist rubric that's just we did it or we didn't it's very simple and straightforward at any age with my teammates now we have created a rubric in middle school english it, it's a little bit uh different i think as far as our grading system is a bit different in our middle than our upper school, but we have three main criteria that, that we look at on our rubric. So we have the 12 principles. So we do it a little bit differently that those principles are what guide the conversation and we reflect on how we did with that, but that's more of a verbal informal reflection. And then we have a rubric that actually looks at um, one is knowledge and understanding so have I used textual evidence to back up my opinion? So some of it still ties in with the principles. Uh, we have um, building on the conversation and using empathy. And then we have making uh, connections, whether that's text to self, text to world, text to text, or any additional research that you bring to the table. So that's how we've kind of um, laid ours out. But I think it depends on your team and 
what you want out of the discussions and also how your school, you know, proceeds with assessments and what works for what's what works for you. I know some schools you have to have a grade. You have to have it in the grade book. You know, if you're using this time in class, some schools are no, that's okay. This is formative. So I think that there's, you know, for the audience listening, I think there's ways that you can tweak it for what works in your system. The rubric provides the teacher what he or she needs for that. Exactly. And I, I would just finally say, put on the rubric what you want to see in discussion. So put behaviors that you want to see. And I think that's an important piece. It's not just academic, as you can see from ours, but that, you know, in your classroom, what behaviors do you want to see and, and have help students assess and self-assess for that? That makes it clear to the students right out there. How about the peer coaching piece, Tracy? So the peer coaching is something that a couple colleagues had shared with me some ideas that they had observed other people using peer coaching. And then I just kind of ran with it over the last few years and developing it with colleagues and, and playing around with different systems. And so basically how, how it works is that um, if you would have a classroom, say of 20 students, you're going to Matt partner those students up. So then you're going to have, you know, 10 partner groups and let's label those groups A and B, A group and B group. And you would have a small circle. So I think uh, some people might have that fishbowl idea, yeah. but it's, uh, it's way more than, than fishbowl for me. It's, it's much more planned, intentional, reflective than, than a, not that fishbowl is bad, but it just takes, it's a bit deeper than that. So you would have, let's say team A goes in, team B is sitting on the outside. Some teachers prefer to have the student that your partner was sitting behind you. Some teachers, it doesn't matter as long as you can hear the whole group. So those people on the outside are now tracking the conversation of everyone inside the same spider web, web yeah. crafting, but they're now taking special notes of their, of their coaching partner. Very cool. So that could be on a that could be on a continuum. Maybe you start out with coaching that all you're going to record is talk time. You know, when does your partner uh, build on someone else's idea? When does your partner ask a question? That's it. And then you might add when do they uh, challenge? When do they use textual evidence? Whatever that may be. So let's say, Steve, you are my uh, partner and you're in team A and you're in the middle and you're discussing whatever it is we're discussing. I'm listening to the whole conversation. I'm graphing the whole conversation, but I'm really honing in on you. How are you participating? What are you bringing to the conversation? I might ta have a tally chart that I've created for kids where it, what they might tally. I might use a different color. On my graph, some uh, it was actually a student of mine that gave that idea. So then, when you come to to coach with me, you see, you know, the red line is Steve. Everybody, uh, yeah. yeah. Um, and then uh, let's say we let students talk for about discuss fifteen minutes. Then they come out, and now they're coached. So you and I would chat, Steve. You're doing a great job. Sometimes it's also like a, I guess a, a cheerleader or someone to support yeah. you. Um, and then th this is the beauty of it. You, you go back in, it's like a game, right? You have halftime, your coach, meets. <laughs> you don't wait until the next game 
to apply what feedback you just got. You don't have to wait a week for me to give you feedback. You're getting it right now in real time. So you go back in and you can apply, you know, that. And then you come out and now we switch our roles. And I, we've just seen some really, personally, I've seen some really amazing things happen with this. The, the relationships that the students are building, the that team aspect, the support aspect, the the conversations I'm hearing with students, you know, you can do this. Like we just talked about this. You've got, (laughs) I'm looking at your notes. It's right there in your notes. You can do it. You know, kids on the outside, like, yeah, (laughs) you know, cheering them on. And I think that that students, um, you know, we, we, we try to do in our middle school lots. We do whole group. We do small groups. We do coaching. We do uh, something we didn't write about in the article, which are silent uh, student-led discussions, something that we've also started. So we try to do all the things and, and give lots of variety, but I think that time and time again, students come back to report that they really love the coaching model. They, they don't feel alone, right? They, it's, they have that support. It, it, cer- it certainly hits the work that, I, that I've done with, with, with teacher coaching, that the, uh, the, the growth occurs in conscious practice. So you've really, you've really created conscious practice. Plus, the observing uh, students uh, are observing in a way that they can't observe when they participate. So, exactly. yeah, it, it's just got learning built in all the way around. Well, we got two left from your, your article. So, uh, Alexis, you want to talk a little bit about uh, the use of essential questions? Yes. Um, I love essential questions. I learned about them again from my dad and his partner, Jay McTie. Um, so I subscribe to their definition of essential question. And um, when I present on essential questions for faculty, sometimes, um, you know, there, there are some misconceptions because an essential question really is um, a question that is, you know, conceptual, deep, can can be asked and re-asked and answered in different ways. So a classic one in my classroom, which is a high school English 10th grade class, is um, what's true, what isn't, how do we know? And, you know, that is great for our unit on 1984. It's great for our unit on media bias. It's great for our unit on research, uh, journalism, life. Um, so, you know, we could start the year with a question like that and have a discussion. And then we could have students write about it after they've discussed and heard each other each other's ideas. But then we could put it on a, a you know, December midterm exam and ask them to use their course texts um, now for to answer that same essential question. So an essential question really is a question that doesn't have it could have a yes or no answer. Is true democracy possible is a great essential question. It can really be debated. Which is the universal language, math or music, is a great essential question. And, you know, the thing about essential questions is that they're sort of equitable in that they level the playing field. Everyone has an idea for a great essential question. So they're great conversation and discussion starters. You don't have to have a lot of knowledge to answer an essential question, what is the universal? Everyone has an opinion about that. But when I do that question with teachers, the math and the music teachers often have really interesting insights that they (laughs) show other people about it. Um, So it it is, you know, I think it's a great way to, um, to initiate discussion. And like Tracy already said at some point earlier, 
the students will use them as anchors. If you're, if you're using them kind of to frame your entire year course, the students will refer back to them often. And in our, in our classroom, we actually put them up on the wall so that they're just there. And the kids will just, in the middle of discussion, turn around and just sort of point and reference them. No, but it's like that, you know, what's true? What isn't? How do you know? Um, or it, it, you know, what is a hero? Can a hero do bad things and still be a hero is a, is a classic hero's journey one. Uh, but it, it talks about our lives as well. So I, I love the use of essential questions. The one sort of misconception about them that I'll say is that they're misused a lot in education. So, you know, often in curriculum mapping, people will say, you know, what are your essential questions? What is a cell? Well, that's not an essential question. That's a key question. That is a very important question in a biology class, but it's not essential by the definition of Wiggins and McTighe. And so the essential question, the ones that can be asked, re-asked, they have, you know, debatable answers. Um, they're nuanced and complex. They're interesting. Those are the ones that you really want for, for student-led discussion and, and conversation. Is it fair to say I might change my answer to an essential question? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Okay, uh, the last part, uh, Tracy, if you want to wrap us up here, the, the last part of your article said spread the word. I think that what we've talked about before working with colleagues, working with teams, being able to share the, the things that are happening in your classroom. I know recently we had a professional development day at the school where Alexis and I are currently working. And uh, I think on the coaching student led discussion method and we had some upper school teachers take a take a chance with that and and try it which was really great to see so that's just having that common knowledge i think when alexis talks about in in the rubric that everyone in the upper school using that rubric is using the same uh language in our middle school we have the 12 principles that students are used to i think it just makes sense for students it makes it easier for teachers. So I think common language, uh, supporting one another, all those things that tie into just spreading all the, the great things that we're doing in our classrooms. Great. And I think, I think really for leaders taking the opportunity, any leaders, leadership or administrators or coaches that could be listening to really highlighting the work um, by spotlighting those things for other faculty. So um, we were really excited to be able to offer the eighth grade um, ELA team that Tracy's a part of an opportunity to share this work with some middle school and upper school uh, teachers in a PLC. And that's what led to so much of this. So it's great when everyone's doing these things, but we're all busy. We don't have time to necessarily see each other's classes as much as we would like to. Uh, but when you really see a presentation or, or get to spotlight someone's work, even just in 10 minutes in a faculty meeting, I think it can make a real difference. So as a result of uh, Tracy and her team's presentation, the entire 10th grade team tried it. You know, we had a number of teachers who were really enthusiastic about it. Now we're using it in high school. And so it's exciting for the middle school team that they got to share that and the students will all benefit from it. Great. Great. Well, I will post the uh, link to the uh, ASCD article in the in the lead in to the uh, podcast so folks can find it. Uh, Alexis, uh, tell folks uh, a, a little bit about your book as a uh, as a resource. Sure. Yeah, it's called the best class. <laughs> 
thought. And it's published by ASCD. And it really goes into depth the history of how I developed um, this type of student-led discussion that I call spiderweb discussion and really offers teachers just a very practical approach. So if you're ever interested in trying this in your classroom, you know, pick up the book, you'll, you'll read it. It's quick read um, and you'll have everything you need to know how to just start it the next day in your classroom. And there's a lot of, I think, as Tracy mentioned, you know, I'm so grateful to her and teachers and coaches like her because the best part is sort of to take what works for you and really adapt it and develop it and make it better. Now that Tracy's introduced us to peer coaching as part of that student-led discussion, now we're we're all growing and benefiting as teachers and students. So, you know, it's not really a one-size-fits-all kind of philosophy. It's it's a shift in classroom culture that really empowers students. So, Alexis, how can folks uh, connect with you and uh, and find out about the uh, the book and resources that you have available? Yeah, I have a webpage where people can contact me, sign up for my newsletter, find all that information. It's uh, sealcenter.org, C-E-E-L center, C-E-N-T-E-R.org. And uh, I'm also active on Twitter at the handle at Alexis Wiggins, A-L-E-X-I-S-W-I-G-G-I-N-S. And Tracy, how about connecting with you? People can connect with me through email. That would be Tracy Riyadh at Gmail, T-R-A-C-Y-R-I-Y-A-D-H, or at the handle at Tracy Hill Riyadh. Well, thank you both so much for uh, what you've shared uh, today. I uh, I got so many ideas running through my head of things that I uh, want to uh, want to e- explore out, out further. And I, I'm sure that's going to be true for many of our listeners. Much appreciate your time. Oh, we're so happy to be here. Thanks for having us. pleasure. Thank you. Thanks for listening in, folks. I'd love to hear what you're pondering. You can find me on Twitter at Steve Barkley or send me your questions and find my videos and blogs at barkleypd.com.